Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit Is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. Welcome back to Detroit Is Different, and we're back in the podcast studios with somebody else I usually say connected. But uh, this man was connected not just to me, but also my family and the greater family of when we think of the interconnected people of Aisha Shule. This is Baba Kinfense, but he's also a professor, uh, a historian, a person that definitely knows deep in the culture when we think about music, when we think about kente cloth, when we think about medallions. He's the last person to sell me my African medallion. Mm-hmm. And also just a creative soul and creative thinker, challenging so much. Baba Kinfense, how are you doing today? Greetings and thank you for having me here today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, you know, uh, we're talking right now connected to the Black Education Workshop that is happening at Alkibalon Village. It's an eight week series. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're we're heading into week three now, Mm -hmm. but uh, really empowering the values of African centered education. Uh, in many facets, uh, when we think of social studies, we think of martial arts, we think of mathematics, English, so much of that. That's what brought this discussion about. But also in this discussion, you definitely know how to unpack so much of what African-centered education is. So let's start there. What's African-centered education? Well, African-centered education is education that is centered in the history and culture of African people. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a response to uh, what you might call Eurocentric education or white studies and hmm. It's, it's way more than African-American history, which a lot of people think that African-centered education is just teaching about uh, historical African-American or African figures. Mm-hmm. So it's also about restoring us to our traditional heritage and, and cultural uh, awareness. Uh, the education that, that exists in this country is designed to, was designed or is designed to transform us to be what the system wants us to be. Hmm. All right. So that is deep in definition. And we're going to get more into that in this interview. But beyond that, let's talk about our meeting place. Uh, I usually start these interviews and I talk about, you know, your Detroit story. But let's talk about the African Center school story. Aisha Shule. Mm -hmm. I met you as you were a drum instructor Mm -hmm. and... Uh, worked with uh, Aisha Shule, and and we've talked about this. I just had an interview with Shamika Nichols, and she unpacked so much of what her Shule experience was. I gave a mm-hmm. little bit about mine, but uh, you were one of the people that were interacting with us as children there. Yes. Um, what led you to Aisha Shule? Well, I originally came to Aisha Shule as a drum instructor and a companyist for the Pyramid Performing Theater. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was working, I was in college working on an undergraduate degree in Africana Studies at Wayne State. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I finished school, when I was approaching graduation for my uh, bachelor's degree in Africana Studies, Mami Mani, who was the director, and I would say she was the lead founder. Aisha Shule was founded by a collective of families who Mm -hmm. wanted an alternative type education for their children, and I credit Mami Mani for 
helping me to to see in the teacher and me because even though I was teaching African drumming, mm-hmm. I didn't really consider myself as a teacher. And she asked me to teach social studies, and I've been teaching ever since in a more academic context. Okay, so African drumming, and, and this is what's so unique is like in age, even though Baba Kenfense, we look the same age now, but uh, <laughs> but Thank I was you. a kid and he taught like, you know, just those lessons stick with you. I remember tone bass, 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 tone bass, 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 tone bass, bass, bass. So uh, for people to understand and you'll see a, a picture of it or whatever, but a djembe drum was what we taught were taught on. Yes. There's also the doon doon and many other things, but you we, we learned a tone. <laughs> a bass and a mm-hmm. slap and you taught us this and through this these percussions we the music that we have is created uh and when yes. we say created through the pyramid performing theater which goes to where did you learn about african percussion in, in african drumming well my first african drum instructor was uh king sundiata keita <laughs> now mm-hmm. uh, and he is a iconic cultural figure in detroit very uh, a master musician, a master mm-hmm. showman, very astute about culture. And he was very active as a, a, a black nationalist and activist from a very mm-hmm. early age of yeah. about 13. That's not when I started drumming. I started drumming as an adult at about 23. Wow. So I had always wanted to play drums, but I never saw the opportunity. And... Uh, when I was around 23, I ran into some money, some extra money, and bought myself a conga from the pawn shop mm-hmm. and connected with Sundiata and started taking lessons. That was about 1983. Okay, so in Detroit has a unique history of very talented percussionists, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Butch Small, who I've interviewed on here many a times. I mm-hmm. love Butch um, and, and all he's done with sounds. Uh, okay. Uh, Maruga, Roy Brooks, uh, so many. But King Sudiata stands out when we think of African percussion and even that oozing into the sounds of uh, some of the music that George Clinton has done and many mm-hmm. others. Like, how did you know to connect with King Sudiata? Did you already know him? Did you? Was it just one of those well, things you were looking for a class? He was always, uh, uh, well, you know, I would see him around. And mm-hmm. interestingly, at one time, he lived a block over when he was in junior high school. Sunyata is either one of, would be one or two years older than me. Mm-hmm. So I would see him walk past. I had no idea who he was, and I was like, this guy in these African clothes, kind of in a ridiculing kind of way, because he always had his own distinct look. And this was like back when you were kids. Yeah, this was probably in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how I came. I think I saw him. Oh, I have to mention this. There was a, in 1976, mm-hmm. there was a group of a group of people organized the inner city tour to China. There was a group of activists. They weren't necessarily black nationalist activists. There were some Hispanics and even some white people involved that organized a trip to take a group of young people to China. And this is in 76. So for people to understand the context of going to China in 76, as I mm-hmm. had a grandfather that traveled there in the 80s, mm-hmm. this is during a time of definitely, as they say, and, and we have to be very mindful of like what I consider messaging or propaganda, however you look at it. But it was a heightened tense of uh, 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 communism, quote unquote. 
but more so just a lot of um, China was on his heels from everything that happened in the Mao regime of of, of the way that uh, um, Europeans oppressed those people with opioids. Yes. And uh, and that led to even today, the whole idea of the the this uh, strained, intense relationship between China and America. So mm-hmm. to go there in 76, that's like a card of the Cold War. It's, it's a lot going on to travel to China then. Right. I continue. think the Cold War was still in effect because if I understand correctly, it wasn't until... Uh, Gorbachev. Well, but I was thinking on this side, Reagan, mm. who just elected in 1980. Yeah. And one of his most noted, quote unquote, accomplishments was to have the war mm. that divided East Communist Russia or East Berlin and West Berlin. That's Germany. In Germany. Yep. To have the war come down. But what was particularly mon- monumental in that regard about the 70s, and I don't remember the exact year, but I think Nixon was the first American president to go to China Mm -hmm. and that would have either been in the late 60s or early 70s because he gets impeached or he's he's threatened with impeachment around 73 yes so uh I think that was significant that he went that I think that began to kind of erode that divide even though it still was in effect by the by 76 Mm -hmm. but uh some of the People that were leading that tour, they were socialists and maybe had communist leanings, but they had, I don't, I don't know what the drive, I'm not, I can't remember what the drive for it was, but they mm-hmm. took a group of young people. I didn't go. I have an auntie that's two years younger than me, and she was involved hmm. with the uh, inner city tour, youth tour to China. And there's also a brother, uh, Oswaldo Rivera, I don't mm. know if you know him, he's a community activist. He teaches at Wayne State. He's been a long time uh, Hispanic, I think he's Puerto Rican, activist. Mm. And he was one of the key people that was a part of that. And uh, anyhow, at one of their fundraisers, they had Amin Ra perform. And Amin Ra, uh, Nguzo Sa Amin Ra was the name of the company. And it, it had, along with Sundiata, Modibo Keita, Kamal Amin-Ra, uh, there were a few other brothers and sisters. And this, this Amin-Ra would be, of course, now it's in a whole other generation. You may know Chenny Lo, Amin-Ra, and uh, why can't I think of their son's name? Mm. You would know him. He yes. taught drumming at uh, Timbuktu, hmm. one of their sons. Now, anyhow, this was one of the early iterations of African drum and dance companies. It was co-founded by the sister named Majida and ultimately Sundiata and Kamal kind of take the helm of Amin Ra. So they were Mm. performing around the city a lot. And I saw them at one of the uh, inner city youth tour, inner city tour to China fundraisers. So that was inspired by that. But by the time I get a drum in 83, I'm not sure how, some type of way I found out how to get it. You connected. Yeah, but you know what, now that I think about it, I've got, in my first marriage, I got married in 1983, mm-hmm. and I was able to reach out to Sundiata and Mubarak Hakim, who was drumming with Sundiata at the time, and they played at my reception. Mm. So I think that was probably the 
initial direct contact to Sundiata wow. shortly after I got married, because I think it was the same year I got married. As a matter of fact, Sundiata hooked up, and I hooked up, and you know I began taking classes with him. Hmm. Uh, after studying with him for a while, I ultimately began performing with her with him, and I just continued to to learn and grow and study with other people. And I can't remember exactly how I came to Aisha Shule, but I do remember it was around 1987. Mm. And I think before I taught the drum class, I was just accompanying the dance class. It may have been because he was there and something in his schedule changed and he may have referred me to do it. Mm -hmm. I remember our, our start at Aisha Shule was 89. So okay. I remember you prominently. That was and a couple years uh, after I first got there, yes. And what's also unique about this is I, I definitely have to peer into this as a professor now that's uh, taught classes at Wayne State and Africana Studies. And it's rarely talked about nowadays, but it was a big fight for Africana Studies to exist at Wayne State. And you well, were one of the people that was in the mix at that. Well, but at that time, actually, I had I didn't start undergrad until 89 but i ah. was inspired by the sit-in so there was a sit-in or a takeover students i think initially it was about 100 students took over to helen newberry joy so like some of uh, them uh daryl darcy uh we think yeah, of daryl uh, darcy was probably like the lead spokesperson ken cockrell jr no, I didn't. I didn't remember that, but um, I do know that Kim Trent was involved. Kim Trent was involved. Also, Errol Henderson. Yes. Uh, so, so, so it's so unique that that sit-in and mm -hmm. that and that call to action and activism mm -hmm. sparked you to have interest in looking at attending Wayne State. Right. It did. And actually, I don't know if you remember this, but. Uh, the Pyramid Performing Theater would perform out in front of the building with, that they had taken over. I, I mean, at this point, I'm so young. Right. Most of these stories I hear, and mm -hmm. that's what's so unique when I mm -hmm. look at Wayne State's campus now, and I talk to some of the black students there, and I say, do you recognize some of the activism that happened here, Not like where you can still walk up and interact and engage with a lot of the people for mm -hmm. black studies to exist at this school? Right. And and the students kind of look at me like I'm speaking Chinese or something. Sometimes, well, it's a you know? it's a definitely a a, a disconnect. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in some ways some of that may have to do with things that uh, the African American Studies Department could be doing more effectively. One a major uh, as I you know studied African American Studies in a formal context at the university level. Coming out of the grassroots as a community activist and a cultural, African cultural worker in terms of using this, this vehicle to teach people about our history, uh, a major challenge for me was the merger of theory and practice. So a lot of what occurs in academia is theoretical, particularly at the scholarship level, whereas what we were doing at Aisha Shule was practical. Mm -hmm. So it's practice. So for me, there's a divide between academia and the community. What's particularly important to me and for some of us that are in African-American studies is African-American studies is the only 
academic discipline that grew out of social struggle, civil, civil disobedience. It came into academia as a result of people sitting there and protesting and demonstrating. Mm. A lot of other uh, area studies like uh, Asian studies, LGBTQ studies, which comes much later, but a lot of these other areas of study, uh, uh, what we call area studies, Mm-hmm. came in on the tail end of black studies. So African-American studies is yeah. generically known as black studies. And the first mm-hmm. acad- the first uh, unit or department or program to be established in academia early on was in 66 at Merritt College, which is in the same area where uh, the Black Panthers came into existence in mm-hmm. Oakland. Then the f- first full-blown African-American studies department that would grant the actual credential is established in 1968 at San Francisco State. I think it was State College at the mm-hmm. time. It's a university now. And, and and what's unique about this, and this is one of the arguments as we get into some of the divisions and, and, and arguments, um, you know, check Claude Anderson's Black Labor, White Wealth, and so many other arguments just of, of, the identity and just the agency of what we represent as black people here in this distorted perspective of America, uh, how we move many other movements have looked to our creativity, our brilliance, our, our resilience, our, 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 our approach towards what human rights here looks like. And then later say, okay, same thing. Like we created so many blueprints for what that argument is. And within creating a lot of these blueprints, we're still coming up with new blueprints mm-hmm. for the argument of human rights. Right. And that that that's like a double edged sword in my perspective, because, for example, I, I, to make the point or to it, it elucidate or illustrate the point that, that or what I get from what you said uh Right now, today, there is struggle to have the voting rights uh, kept intact. So there's efforts by the right right wing Republicans and conservatives mm-hmm. to make it hard for people to vote, to inhibit the vote of black folks and other folks. Mm-hmm. Now, we are 150 or so years post the 14th Amendment, which was supposed to guarantee the right to vote for Americans. The 13th Amendment ended slavery. 14th Amendment grants us citizenship, mm-hmm. and the right to vote is is one of the rights of citizens. Mm-hmm. But our rights are still contested, yes. which to me conveys that our citizenship is still contested. And... Uh, as you mentioned about the blueprint, the historical struggle of black folks, particularly the second segment where people focus on as the civil rights movement, uh, was definitely a blueprint for to, the effort to get rights for people that have disabilities yes. and a whole bunch of other things. And part of what we we have done in our effort to struggle, we can go back to Benjamin Banneker, David Walker, many voices of African-Americans or Africans in America during the era of enslavement that challenged the the uh, 
principles and concepts of the of the United States Constitution, like freedom, equality, and justice. So we historically called out the people, the founding fathers and others, to say to point out the contradiction. For example, this country was born, at least allegedly, out of the quest for freedom from tyranny and taxation without representation. Wait, I, I, wait, I got to stop you on that. That's to me, that's that's the packaging. That's the marketing. That's the of propaganda course. of what America is. And like I often tell people, the 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 quote unquote founding fathers that founded this nation were these were not the Europeans in England, Spain, and in in Germany. Because uh, to me, that's like the center of when I think of whiteness in France that were that were excelling. Mm-hmm. These were the vagrants, the criminals, the ostracized, uh, religious zealous, the kind of like the the offshoots of like, let's see what you can do over here. We'll give you some money because to me, this is how I explain this, my story of America. When I talk to people, it'd be like, I'm going to give you some money to go over there and see what you can do. Mm hmm. And then when Britain came back and said, all right, give us uh, our points back off the money that you owe us. They said, hey, no mm-hmm. taxation without representation. Mm-hmm. So it's still even like a lot of Americans don't understand. It's still tensions between certain Europeans in America because the argument with many Europeans, especially Britain sometimes, has been America never honored any of its obligations to begin with. But, you know, it the but the what's written on paper you know especially when we think of the bill of rights Mm -hmm. and this is another thing as we're looking at the amir lock case and like can black people have the right to bear arms and what we deal with even in that uh what we look like what we look at what's on paper is the design of this nation i still feel like it's not it, it was always designed for white men that own land and businesses and outside of that scope the further you go the more it's just outside the design of what this nation is supposed to do. Well, they designed it for themselves. And yeah. at, at the, during the time that it was set up, designed, or created, our people here, for the most part, were enslaved. And we weren't seen as people so to begin with. there was no even consideration for the poss- prospect or possibility of including enslaved African people. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one critique is that part of the problem we pose for this society is there was no there, there was no plan for emancipation. No. And once emancipation came about at the end of the Civil War, it was kind of unclear on well, what do we do with the Negroes? But being the people that they are, the shift was just a neo form of slavery in the form of sharecropping, sharecropping and yes. convict leasing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that would be the new plan, which Mm -hmm. really, as I said, I refer to it as neo-slavery, but it's really a continuation of slavery. But neo means new, so still exploitation. Even the way we function in in a capitalist society, the workers are Mm -hmm. exploited. And what I mean by that, Mm -hmm. if, if I'm a businessman, the only way I can really benefit or profit from employing you is being able to make more off make more money make a profit off of the 
expense I pay for your labor. So yes. if I'm paying you $20 an hour, I need to be making that $20 back plus another 20 profit off of your work. Probably more like 80. But I, I would I, I would also go as far as to say, like, even the foundation of this nation, which, you know, enslavement of our people here goes mm-hmm. back further than the foundation of this nation. Um, and even with the foundation of this nation in the Constitution, as many people say, you know, three fifths human being, that was a hard argument because the South, I believe, left the foundation still feeling bitter. Like the 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 many of the Southern the whole idea of the three fifths human being was because Southern delegates wanted to have more say in what would happen in this nation. But the Northern delegates were arguing, well, you don't even have many people down there. You only have enslaved people, which at the time, you know, my ancestors were not even seen as people. So it's like, okay, let's make them three fifths a human being. So now I can have more bodies in Congress and, and, and bodies in Congress leads to more sway of this nation. But many of that Southern delegation moves to start what we now recognize as the Confederacy. Then Mm -hmm. the minute that this nation was founded, because many of those Southern delegates walked away in though, when you read this, the whole angry man, and it was a fight and James Madison and Benjamin Franklin all worked this out. Those Southern delegates did not feel that it was fair and they never felt that it was fair. You know, well, it's been an ongoing struggle for power, but that's yes. Part of that, in my opinion, is human nature. Mm-hmm. So uh, this country, the, the premise that this country is set on, that it's that is built on is the idea that all people are created equal. And But the Free reality liberty, is, justice for all. But the, the reality is, and you said, you said something about the packaging or the branding. These mm-hmm. are, we know that's just not true. Even if we look at the last president, this person has been allowed to get away with all kind of stuff. Yeah. All kind of stuff. And a lot of it has to do with, if not all of it, the fact that he's a white man. This like, was set up by white men for white men. Well, but a particular type, like I say, property and businesses. White men with property and businesses are even honored because it's still a caste system within what we label as whiteness. So even in conversations like this, And you have a wealth of knowledge in reference to this. And I like just stirring things around in my mind. But this still comes from the foundation of an African-centered education as the premise. What's the interest right now more and more with so many of the people such as myself and others around African-centered education now? And do you think that it's different now than what that movement was in the 70s and 80s? I think it's in decline now. Um, there were some things that occurred within the, what I'll call the formal African-centered education movement. That movement evolves out of community control of schools movements in the late 60s. And that was an effort by African-Americans and Hispanics to gain control of the schools, the public schools in our communities. And then do after protesting, negotiating, compromising, and trying to uh, approach or build or gain control of the schools in our community so we could control our children, the brothers and sisters that were at the forefront of that movement got frustrated with being played by 
the people on the other side, and they just said, to hell with this movement. We're going to just build our schools, our own schools. So one of the first was uh, Uhuru Sasa, which was founded in New York, in Brooklyn, New York, by uh, G2 Wayusi. And there were other schools popping up around the same time. And the idea was to create an alternative type of education. It was major philosophical philosophical or ideological uh, debates. One of the main, main debates was, as we seek to establish an alternative type education for our children, should we create schools outside of the public school systems or because most African-American children or children of African descent are in the public schools, should we try to reform or fight within the system to create schools that can deliver the type of education we think that African children need? So, and it's interesting because this debate, ultimately you have groups of teachers and parents that separate from public education and establish independent schools or private schools. So like the, Mommy, early, Mommy. the earliest, yes, the earliest iteration of this during the uh, black power era or kind of on the end of the black power era around the early 70s, it's called the independent black school movement. The independent black school movement morphs into the African-centered education movement. So it, mm-hmm. it, was, it wouldn't be have been called that at its inception. Mm-hmm. Mami Mani, as part of a collective of families called Umoju Abuganda, which included Mami Mani, Mami Mani her sister Malkia Brantul. Uh, do you remember Toby that went to the Shule? No. Okay, I think he may have come after you, but his mm-hmm. grandmother, I can't remember her name, mm-hmm. uh, Mama Anamoy Hill, which mm-hmm. was Mama uh, Akanke's mother. I'm sure you remember yes. Mama Anamoy. Remember her. Mama Razia Curtis. You rem- do you remember Mama Kabibi? Yes. Her mother. Mm-hmm. And these, all of these, there were some other people whose names don't come to me at this time, but uh, these, this group of families came together and said we're going to create a school and they tried it on a kind of trial basis and once they got it going I think they did it for maybe a semester they just continued to do it they weren't there was no such thing as a charter so they weren't concerned I I shouldn't say they weren't concerned about the money but the money was not a issue on whether or not the school Mm -hmm. could exist now that's around 72 I think they may have had an early version prior to 72 and Insaroma is founded in a similar fashion. Insaroma is founded in 1989 by a group of families mm-hmm. that came together and wanted a uh, uh, culturally relevant and culturally focused education to educate their children. So Maliki Akini, Mama Kianga, who I'm sure you know, uh, she's referred to as Mama Sedekanya, I think now. She works at Timbuktu, mm-hmm. which is now Barack Obama Academy. Uh, I don't, you may know Sawatu. She was younger than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she she was she's an activist, mm-hmm. and she was in the news probably three or four years ago for yes. having... Uh, discharged a firearm or something. Her mother, Mama Motisala is her name. Uh, Baba Kalinde, Mama Jindai, uh Mama, Mama Njia. I'm not sure if Mama Njia was in at, in, at this point. Okay. But also 
Mama in Kangazola, who's the mm -hmm. ancestor now. Mm -hmm. So they are had children at the Shule, and there was a conflict emerged, so they pulled out of Aisha's Shule. And collectively, it started with Malik homeschooling his children, and because this group of people had decided they wanted something different for their children, and they there were some differences between this group of people and the Shule, they, they were looking for an alternative place to educate their children. Malik was, because Malik was a public school teacher, Mm. And he was homeschooling his children, and the other people in the group asked them if he would homeschool their children, or if he would, if they could bring their children to him as well. What's funny in hearing this is my very first Detroit is Different podcast was with Bob and Malik. Yeah, he tells a, the whole story, and he says the first thing you need to do if you want to start a school is you got to make sure you got your resources <laughs> together. Well, but, yeah, but he—that's something he knows mm. from firsthand having. Mm found been involved in the movement uh mm -hmm. worked in independent african centered schools when mm -hmm. they were Af independent uh co-founded and directed a school and moved that school from being an independent school to a charter school which means the school is getting public funds so he has he knows that from firsthand experience and he has amongst that story a bunch of stories oh, to yeah. tell about being a black nationalist because he is a brother that's committed mm -hmm. and all you have to do is look at his look at what he does and you can see that most definitely uh and and we was as you speak of today you said you think it's a little less interest as we get to the wrapping of this interview what why do you think it's less interest and then furthermore do you even think well even before we get to that question What's the perspective of many parents when they hear the term African-centered school? Like, what's the, when we think of the branding, the, the messaging, like, what's the disconnect? Because I, I personally, as a, as a graduate of African-centered schools, and it's interesting as I'm interviewing more people connected, it's a different, like, when people say they talk to me and my sister Dar and many of us, my cousin Donna, uh, mm -hmm. or Serafina, uh, and Zynga, it's like a different Jabari. Yeah, it's like a different um something different in us. Uh rest in peace, Kwame, before he passed, we would talk about it. Um it's like a different level of confidence. Not saying that we're a lot better, but just our orientation, and I often tell people this, like to know to know more about Marcus Garvey than Benjamin Franklin at the age of thirteen was so different for me than many others mm -hmm. to know you know to to sit in a class that it's like it's this isn't the first grade this is the Maasai nation is just mm -hmm. different to know about the dogon nation uh it's different like to learn more of the actual names that were adopted at the time of what even africa itself it's different you know and and this is like Eight, nine, ten, eleven. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the perspective of most parents when they think of what African-centered education is, and what's the disconnect for them not to see that substantive value? Well, I think that there is a there is a great deal degree of ambiguity. A lot of people don't understand what African-centered education is. Even some people that are 
operating in the context of African-centered curriculum and things like that. In fact, in the research that I did, conducted for my um, dissertation, which looked at the African, the evolution of African-centered education as a movement from 1972 to 2000, uh, what I was able to conclude is that there's varying strands or, or there's various approaches. So some mm-hmm. people look at African-centered education as simply working to strengthen young people's self-esteem. So if you can teach them, and not that this is really a part of it all, but some people feel like if I can just teach my children about Marcus Garvey and about Harriet Tubman, but some people believe it's more that it's about more than that. And, most people want their children to have an education. Most of us as parents want our children to have a better life than the one that we had. So people were attracted to the African-centered schools for different reasons at different times. Mm-hmm. Many of the founders of African-centered education were black nationalists, mm-hmm. and they were trying to impart an education on their children that would develop black nationalist values and, and, and uh, principles and also African cultural valuable values and principles as well. Now some, and I saw this happen particularly after the schools became chartered, there was an influx now because when the schools were private, you had to pay tuition to go to the schools. Mm-hmm. By the time that the schools become chartered, now they're accessible to more people, and people are coming there for different reasons. So some people were attracted to schools like Aisha Shuland and Saroma because we had smaller class sizes, mm-hmm. because the environment was safer than what was in the public schools, mm-hmm. you see. so. But another phenomenon that I saw occur is people that brought their children there— uh, Still, they they wanted, ultimately, the goal for many of us was still for our children to be successful, which translates, I want to, I want my child to go to Stanford University or Harvard and and have a better life, which a better life, it, it, from my perspective, and I, I don't think this is unique, equates with more access to the economy. So the better job I have, the more credentials I have, really equates with me having the ability to make more money. Mm-hmm. And there were people that operated within that same context as parents of children in African-centered schools, but there were also people mm-hmm. that wanted to build leaders and workers that would be about developing the skills, getting the credentials, and the skills that would help to build a nation that would work t- towards independence for our people. So that's kind of kind of a, di- a divergence. I think there were some things that occurred in Detroit that kind of uh, led the movement, caused the movement to go in decline. But I don't think it's that different from if you look at our history, like in the 1920s or the late teens, around the time of the Harlem Renaissance. During that time period, Marcus Garvey is at his prime, yeah. creating a Universal Negro Improvement Association. Yeah. The Harlem Renaissance is at a time where black people are very conscious, very aware. And this was a period that kind of was at a height in our ongoing forward flow uh, in terms of our culture and history in this country. 
But there was also a time since then where that same spirit or energy went into decline. Yeah. And historians look at this and see that this ebbs and flows, this activism. Yeah. You see? So I think that, uh, when I think I know that the uh, African-centered education movement grew out of the black power movement. It emerged during the black power era. And there was a time when black power was popular. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I'm just using that as an analogy. That type of music, wearing tikis, even before the the, uh, medallions were out. Yeah. And then, if we could use the medallion just as a symbol, that becomes popular in the late 80s. True. Where some of us had seen the rise in black culture or, or uh, you know, affinity to symbols like the medallion and things in the 60s. Well, 20 years later, this comes back. And historically, there's been an ebb and flow of activism amongst our people. And it seems, even though I think it's in decline, it's shifted in a way where now I think there's more emphasis on uh, homeschooling and yeah. homeschooling co- collectors. And this even precedes uh, coronavirus. Yeah. So a major organization for independent, uh, for African-centered schools was the Council of Independent Black Institutions which was a uh, like an umbrella organization of independent African-centered schools. And there were things that occurred that caused uh, uh, friction in that organization. And, you know, due to this friction, some of the debates and arguments over what is African-centered and do you have to be independent to be an African-centered school? Yeah. So this, this greatly impacted the structure of the organization. There was a split in the organization, and as those people that were advocates for black nationalism and uh, mm-hmm. the education being focused on independence, they, when this divide came, and the Council of Independent Black Institutions kind of went in decline, the people in that organization began to focus on homeschooling and building homeschool collectives because it didn't have the institutional base it had at one time and that institutional base meaning more actual schools that were part of the organization and this is across the country each one of the schools contributed to the the uh, revenue of the of that organization based on the number of families that were a part of the school so for example Aisha Shule's dues would be based on how many families were attended Aisha Shule and if you had 300, 400 families, and then you have a school somewhere else that maybe has five families, then you see an institution like Aisha Shule in Saroma is paying much more money. Mm-hmm. And when these schools pull out of that organization, of course, it impacts the revenue. And the organization didn't fold. It just shifted its focus. And, and, and that's, uh, that's powerful. Um, so as we get to a close, uh, this series that's happening right now, Black Education Workshop, um, what does it mean to you? Why did you want to participate? And, um, what, what will parents, because this is, this is across the board. So this isn't just for, this isn't drop your kid off and then come back in three hours or whatever. This is Mm -hmm. a family-based learning experience. What, uh, what drew you into this and, and, and why, why are you connected? I was originally asked to participate, mm-hmm. and I commend Al-Kibalan Village 
And uh, this particular project, uh, which I understand is being is operating under the leadership of Barbara Greg McKenzie, mm-hmm. who has helped pull this together. And it it's interesting, not that it's not in, not appropriate, but Alkibalion Village is technically not a school. Mm-hmm. And my hope would be that some of the African-centered schools would be at the spearhead of this effort. Mm-hmm. But as my dissertation looked at the evolution of the African-centered education movement in Detroit, part of what compelled me to select that research topic, it was disturbing to me as I watched this movement shift mm-hmm. and what I think began to decline. So I saw these philosophical uh, differences play out, and I feel like it, 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 it helped contribute to the decline of African-centered education as a movement. So to see uh, Barbara Gregg, uh, Master Cofield, who, who of course is the uh, director of Al-Kibalan Village, for them to see a need to do something like this, it touched my heart because this is something I'm passionate about. Me teaching in Aisha Shule and in Roma Institute was very much about a passion. Me playing drums is about a passion. Uh, my introduction to black nationalism in a formal sense came through the Shrine of the Black Madonna, which really took me off of the streets of Detroit. But I was exposed to a lot of black nationalist ideas and concepts and influences by growing up in the 60s. Mm. So going, there used to be political rallies in the parking lots of the grocery stores. Mm-hmm. You're probably too young to remember stores like A&P and Wrigley's, mm-hmm. but some Saturdays you would see political rallies where people, and it wasn't necessarily a protest, it was just to geek you up about our culture and our history. Mm-hmm. Going downtown and seeing Black Panthers, brothers and sisters selling newspapers mm-hmm. and collecting money. Seeing the news with people like uh, uh, Fred Hampton, Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale, uh, the San Quentin Seven or San Quentin Six, Mm -hmm. George Jackson, seeing these people in the news, that fascinated me as a young man. Mm -hmm. So I had those seeds were planted. Then once I hit my teens, I kind of took a detour, you know, as we do. You know, adolescence can be all the things that it can be. But I was able to be redirected back to our struggle. So first it was the shrine and African drumming, African drum and dance. And I find myself at Aisha Shule teaching drum and dance, which is still me kind of imparting this knowledge and information, teaching about our history and culture. That was the attraction to me for drumming, you see. And Mommy Money sees in me. This teacher, she just asked me to teach social studies. I didn't have a, a formal edu- background in education. I don't have, uh, I wasn't a certified teacher or in an um, education program at Wayne State. And that's when I realized that that's what my calling was. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, I wrote on um, African-centered education for my dissertation to get my doctorate degree, and I selected that topic because it was something meaningful to me. I was passionate about it. And I really wanted to look at what was the source of this rupture in this movement. And part of my hope was that my research 
would show the various entities in the movement what the impact was of the rupture. So I'm not as, you know, I've been teaching most of my posts, having my PhD, I've taught more than done research. So the fact that someone came to me and I get, I'm asked to do presentations from time to time about African-centered education. And it's, it's a topic that I'm very illuminated Mm-hmm. And excited about because mm-hmm. I think it is essential, is an essential component of our liberation. Wow, that's that's very deep and um, great way to close. Uh, and I'm going to bring you back where we can unpack more of your story, the classic, okay. you know, what are your family's roots? How did they get to Detroit? And, you know, the, my classic Detroit is different questions. But I definitely wanted to get people some information about this uh, workshop series that uh, we're doing some of the tech work as this tech is, is definitely one of my loves. But also in understanding of it, you know, I see it more from the people I know. From, from the people I went to school with uh, and so many of the people uh, and what that instills because confidence goes a long way, especially in young black men. Um, and, you know, to know that I can lean back and there's so many examples of, of black ingenuity and creativity, which I think that's my lifeblood that I have as a premise of like, okay, I can figure this out. But I'd like to say another component that we haven't touched on much, there's a spiritual component to this as well. Mm-hmm. So for, uh, I'm trying to remember, the Aisha Shule used to have a, a part of the name of the school was something for the gifted child. Mm-hmm. So we operated from the premise that all African children are gifted. We all come mm-hmm. here with gifts. But in both schools, there was an environment that nurtured the spiritual inside or the spiritual essence of the children. And when children are being taught by people that love them, you see, I believe our mother is our first teacher. And in most situations, mothers, you know, they just shower us with love. Mm -hmm. And that kind of environment can help uh, young people or even old people flourish when you know that people really love you and care about you, but that's not what you see in public schools. Not that there's not the rare occasion. I have my son goes to Southfield A&T, and when I hear some of the stories of what goes on in the schools from students fighting teachers to all kind of stuff, and you know things like that would never have happened at the Shoelay. And I'm a, I'm a Northwestern guy. I think you went to Northwestern. I went to so, Northwestern. And you were actually there when they, uh, I think, when they painted the, the cannon in front, I, as I'm say. not that old. <laughs> I thought you were there, then. No. Okay, no, so, no. like, when we think about activism, my, my high school alma mater. Yes. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't be because you said 70s and stuff yeah, like that. They, but they, uh, they were painting this, that cannon red, black, and green either in the late 60s or early yeah, 70s. Yeah, late Okay. And so they so would for, paint it red, black, and green, and the school would paint it back. And, then and that they, went back and forth. Yeah. But Sundiata went to Northwestern. Northwest I didn't know that either. And but, McMichael, which was right, right, around, right the around the corner. And just an interesting story in my mm-hmm. research. On African-centered education, I kind of looked at the antecedents, things that led to, that were precursors to African-centered education. There was a student protest movement in Detroit. Big where time. students were uh, sitting in the schools. And the, the students from Northwestern 
bum-rushed the Detroit Board of Education school board demanding that the school rename Northwestern Act, uh, High School and, Mal- and uh, McMichael Malcolm X High School and uh, Junior High School. And, and I was going to say, uh, it's so unique. And I'm going to replay this interview. I got to talk to Kofi, his son, first. But uh, when I interviewed Kwame Kenyatta, definitely a big proponent when we think of uh, black nationalism and the African-centered education movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the premise for this, and it was a great interview. I only gave snippets. I'm going to release the whole interview. Mm-hmm. But he even talks about that happening at Cooley High School. Mm-hmm. And from his time at Cooley in the protest for it, it you know, this is sick. It's like a cycle in this whole discussion of of wanting black studies there. And then that sit in there led to a lot of the students being um, expelled from Detroit public schools altogether. That expulsion led to a need for independent education to get a GED led by Dan Aldrich. Shout out Reverend Dan and Mami Imani teaching uh, Kwame Kenyatta and many of the others to lead them to get their GED. Well, it's you interesting know. that you say that. I, mm-hmm. I also have a GED, and I knew Kwame Kenyatta reasonably well, but there was a school called Oakland Prep School, mm. and I don't know if Kwame brought this up, but Oakland Prep School was a school for children that had gotten in trouble mm-hmm. or had dropped out of school. Mm-hmm. Now, the sister that there was a director of the school, her name was Monifa Jemani. She's a black nationalist, part of the Pan-African Congress. But, and I didn't know this back then. I went there. Kwame was gone. He went there. I later found out when I, because I went there at 16. Mm-hmm. I, hadn't, I didn't know who Kwame was or any of that. I went there at 16 and 17. I was out of there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we later found out that we had both went to school. But another unique connection there was Mommy Imani taught at that school. Yes. You see? Mm-hmm. And there was a lot going on at that school. That school was called Oakland Prep School. It was a school funded by Oakland University. And the idea was to try to wow. catch young people at that age where they had either couldn't go to school or had dropped out to try to, like you a, know, a, catch as them. As they say, the last chance and, schools. And mm-hmm. as if you completed their program, the high school part of their program, Along with you, you know, taking your GED and passing, you would get four college credits. Wow. So I'm just saying that's, that's a connection that me and Kwame had, but also Mami Mani. Another thing about Mami Mani, I like to say, I know we're trying to wrap this up. Oh, no, nah, man. But you mentioned her and Dan Aldrich. Now, Bob Dan, Dan Aldrich is very important to our history and culture. That brother was involved in SNCC, and in fact, he used to train the SNCC some of the SNCC students mm-hmm. on methods for protest. Mm-hmm. But his office, the SNCC office was right, it was... Right there off like uh, Grand River and... Um, no, this was on the east, this was the east side. Oh, okay, okay. Near uh, King High School, you see. And he was, though, that student protest movement, he yeah. was also tr- teaching... Very big in that. He was teaching children, high school children, how to use these same tactics. But mm. Mommy Money was teaching at what, what, what was then yeah. Eastern. Yeah. And she mm. actually was very instrumental in helping the students 
to get them to change the name from Eastern to Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King. And I was going to say, yeah. So, like, all I was going to get to that story because Dan, when I interviewed Mm -hmm. him, he kind of told that story. I interviewed him for my work. A lot of the interconnected nature of a lot of this, Mm -hmm. like the origination, it's like points and points. Mm -hmm. And I even find it so. inspiring now to know that your story and path of interest in Wayne State starts with that protest. Mm -hmm. So this fight for African-centered education has come in part from many students, Mm -hmm. not just parents, Mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes we think of education as like it's always parents advocating for it. Mm -hmm. But this has been a movement from students, as we've seen. And Detroit has a history when you just gave me with Northwestern. I didn't know the whole context of the story, but I did know that the canon, it's a canon that sits in front of Northwestern Mm -hmm. High School. Mm -hmm. And I'm the president of Northwestern's alumni, but (laughs) in front of Northwestern High School because of the armory and many other things that connect Northwestern Mm -hmm. was playing it red, black and green. Mm -hmm. I knew some of the black and forth around the Mm -hmm. time that uh, Sacred Heart Ministry, the the Jesus was painted black. Like it's a lot of. It's a lot of activism in and around oh, these yeah. Linwood, and, Dexter, in, Detroit streets. In the midst of those two places, those locations, you have uh, Northwestern High School, which you probably know that Northwestern was originally on the corner mm-hmm. of Grand River and West Grand Boulevard, where yes. Tabernacle Church is. Yep. And then you have uh, Sacred Heart Seminary mm-hmm. on Chicago and Lin- Linwood. Yep. But right in the middle of that, you got the, the shrine of the black Madonna. The heart of black nationalism when yes. we think of Christianity. Yeah. Yes, sir. Your emoji. So, I mean, it's this this city is replete with uh activists mm-hmm. and not just in the sixties or the fifties, mm-hmm. going back to the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. People like I don't know if you've interviewed Jamon Jordan, but people like uh uh oh my God, William Lambert. Mm-hmm. And uh, I forget the other brothers' names. These brothers were abolitionists in the in the 1800s. And a lot of people, a lot of the story or the narrative about abolitionism is distorted because yeah. these brothers were not just peaceful, you know, follow the white abolitionists, whatever. They were armed brothers that they, were about. They were about it. It, it, This is so unique as you talk about like it's like a it just keeps unpacking to understand the resilience and Mm -hmm. even the connection to uh, what's that Chatham, Ontario. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a studio back when I was a part of the 1440 Collective off East Mm Gratiot and connected to that studio is this old Catholic church uh, that Jimmy Womack was at one point in time pastoring like well, not Catholic. It was uh, what is that? What's the wing of Catholicism that kind of re- gets into black? Okay, I'm, I'm I'm tripping on that. But the church, it's an old steeple, but connected to that, because they were connected to this abolitionist movement. And he was telling me some of these stories of Lambert, but they have like a couple of caskets mm-hmm. that at the bottom of the casket, it's like, okay, this is how people got to Canada. A hidden compartment. Yeah. And and like just mm-hmm. looking at this stuff, it's like, wow, this is just the story of the Blackburns who I don't know if you know that story, but the Blackburns, uh, they were arrested. I think they had escaped from slavery and see prior to this Fugitive Slave Act, black folks would come to Detroit. This was one of the mm-hmm. one of the terminals or destinations mm-hmm. the people came to via the Underground Railroad. Yeah. 
1850, they passed the Fugitive Slave Act, so blacks now mm-hmm. start going to Canada yeah. so they can be out of the reach of the law. But the Blackburns mm-hmm. had been arrested. I think the wife had been arrested, and she was in jail, and the community came together. A sister went to went there under the guise of visiting her, and she went in, and they changed clothes. And the one, the Blackburn was a couple. The sister escaped and was able to get to Canada. Mm. You see, I mean, the 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 history here going back then. And another thing that a lot of people don't know, so you, you got me started. Mm. There was a time where Canada, Windsor, was controlled by the British. Mm-hmm. And the British, we know, enslaved people. Yeah. So slavery existed in Canada, and Definitely. people were escaping from Canada, fleeing the British, coming to this side. Yeah. So this back and forth resulted in the creation of communities on both sides. Yeah that were there to support uh, our ancestors as they were seeking refuge from slavery. Deep, I'm going to definitely bring you back. This is, uh, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Uh, this was rich. Uh, One it, thing I want to say, I know I keep saying this, but I urge you, I, ho- I hope you had the information. I, I hope that there's still time that parents that may see this, family members, teachers that may see this, there was a sister there, that was the uh, curriculum director for one of the schools in the city. Mm-hmm. But hopefully we can, the, an interview like this and things will urge or uh, incite others to come and participate in the, the remaining seven, six or seven weeks. Yes. Because we need a resurgence in African-centered education, particularly now that we're having all of this discussion uh, mis- misinformation about quote unquote critical race theory, Come and they're trying back. to shut down teaching the truth mm-hmm. in public schools. So, this is a time, in my opinion, that African centered education is even more important. And we find ourselves under attack. I talked about the voter suppression and things like that. We saw what happened at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. January 6th was a, which is a direct assault on people of African descent and our vote. So this conveys to me, and I think these are people that are holdovers or the descendants of the people. You mentioned the Confederacy. These people are still fighting the same war. And we need to get on point or on par with understanding what's happening and, you know, intensify what we're doing to save our children and ourselves. Definitely. Thank you so much, Baba Kinfense. You're welcome. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.